going to encourage you to take out your Bible. Turn over to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5 is, I sat down the first week of January and asked God where he would like me to, where he would lead me to preach this year. I thought we would start out with the emotions and God as we talk about the Psalms. It's so interesting as God begins to give you these places to preach and titles and everything, how you begin to get to experience those things in that week as you go through them. And I just think back to Charles Stanley when Diane and I used to go to his church on Wednesday nights when we lived in Conyers, Georgia, and he talked about he spent more time in prayer than he did in preparing for his messages because he knew God was going to take him through these experiences. So I've experienced some of those emotions this week, and I want to talk today about the cry for justice, an imprecatory psalm. Psalm chapter 5. And so we start off with, what is an imprecatory psalm? Well, look to the screen for a definition. An imprecatory is a curse that invokes misfortune upon someone. Imprecatory psalms are those in which the author imprecates, that is. He calls down calamity, destruction, and God's anger and judgment on his enemies. That's what we're going to talk about today. And there's a section in here that makes this the imprecatory psalm. But Psalm 5 continues the theme. If you read Psalm 3 and 7, um, they're all pretty connected. This psalm was written by David during the time of Absalom's rebellion. If you remember, Absalom, his son, rebelled against David. And uh, at a period of time, he was standing at the gate and he was winning over the people, winning over their hearts to make him the next king without David's knowledge. And so finally, when Absalom thought he had reached the tipping point of support, he got his troops together and he was headed to Jerusalem to dethrone his dad and take over control. And as David heard the news that Absalom was on the way, David leaves his home and his throne in Jerusalem for a safer place. And it's thought at this time, this is when he wrote Psalm chapter 5. Notice the heading to the psalm, to the choir master for the flutes, appears to be directed to the one who is part of the uh, leadership of the choir who oversees the flute or pipe and is going to provide musical accompaniment for this psalm. This psalm may have been a morning song, a song sung as a prayer to begin the day in conversation with God. You see that suggested in verse 3 when it's repeated twice in the morning. The phrases of these first three verses of Psalm 5 are common phrases often used in Jewish traditional prayers. So the rhythm of this psalm is first praise, then he's going to petition or ask God, then the imprecation, he's going to demand curses on his enemies, and then we're going to see at the end his praise. So our scripture reading today is in Psalm chapter 5. Pay close attention as we honor God's word as we read it. It says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors, he hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. 
Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fail or fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you, God. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. And let's bow for prayer. Father, open our hearts, open our minds. Let your spirit flow, your servant, me, to clearly share these things. These are not my words, Lord. These are yours. And pray that we would receive them as if you were sitting here sharing these things with us today. Lord, you know the needs of every heart in this room. And we know that this word can go out and meet every one of those needs. Again, help us to be open to your spirit. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's move now to the first three verses of this wonderful psalm. The psalmist's prayer for God's attention, for God's attention. Look at verse one. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. When he says give ear to my words, it means to implore. He's begging. He's asking God to incline his ear, to give attention, full attention to David's prayer. Literally, it means to attend carefully to someone or something with the intent of responding for the petitioner's benefit. That's what David wants. He wants to be heard, but he wants a response. He wants to know God is going to do something about his prayer. Then he says, consider my groaning. Groaning being unintelligible sounds with the inability to express fully in words. Have you ever been at that place where you've cried so much you can't cry anymore? Have you ever been to that place that you've been so deeply hurt you just don't know how you're going to express it anymore? You just don't know how to pray and what to say to God? I've been there. And the thoughts of what has occurred and is occurring sweeps over you, like we said last week, wave after wave of emotions that are uncontrollable. You don't know where to turn, who to talk to. All you can do is go to God. And Paul talked about this sense, this feeling, this emotion in Romans chapter 8. He said, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself prays for us, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When we can't even express it, when we get to that level, the Holy Spirit comes and takes that boatload of emotion to the very throne of God and interprets it on our behalf as a prayer. In Psalm 39.3, says, My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David was overwhelmed with a mixture probably of anger toward his son, sadness toward Absalom for how his son has turned out, how he failed as a father in raising him, frustration, wondering how it all came to this point. Why was his son hunting him down to harm and kill him and take over his throne? When these thoughts overwhelm us, we get into this vicious cycle of thinking over and over and over again and reliving the moments of the past where we wish we could go back and do something different. We have to avoid playing the what-if game. 
Well, what if I did this differently? What if this happened differently? What if I knew what I know now? I could have done a better job. David's thinking about his son coming to steal the throne, and he is beside himself. He's groaning. He doesn't know how to express himself to God. Verse 2 says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. Notice David's strong desire for God to hear him. He says, my king. He says, my God. David the king is acknowledging that God is the true king of Israel. David is saying, in essence, I may sit on the throne in Jerusalem, but I'm merely a manager for the king of Israel. And so has the previous kings, and so will be the future kings. Elohim, my king, my God. David here is saying this on behalf of all the kings in the future. He's showing his humility and his dependence upon God. And when he says, my God, that's a personal term. Elohim, God is righteous. He's a judge. He's mighty. He's a sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's ever-present. He's all-knowing God of the universe. It's like when Jesus uses the term in the Greek in the New Testament, Abba, Father. He's our daddy. He is one close by. And by using that name Elohim, he's implying that my God is nearby and can be called upon and is more than able to deliver and to protect him. Verse 3 says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David addresses God and uses this phrase in the morning twice in this verse for emphasis. What is he emphasizing here? David is saying that every morning God's hope love and mercy are renewed. And he's saying, in essence, that like every day, every morning when we wake up, because we know in 2 Peter 1, it says that God has given us all things that pertain to godliness, that at our front door of our imagination, God brings a tool, a a box, like Amazon would do. And he gives us the emotions, the strength, everything, the mental capacity we're going to need to face the day ahead, which he already knows all about. And he says, God, you're going to give me these things for whatever I'm going to face, whatever comes my way. That's why we all love that section of scripture in Lamentations 3. We all know this well. We got to memorize this. The steadfast, the loyal love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The night moving to dawn's light is a picture of renewed hope. And David knew that God would not turn his back on him or forsake him. In Psalm 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and God hears my voice. Isaiah 49, I love this section of scripture, but Zion said, the Israelites said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. But verse 15, God responds. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Think about that. Even if a mom forgets the name of her newborn child, I will not forget you, God said. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands Your walls are continually before me. As we we were reminded, God will never leave us nor forsake us. In the Screwtape letter, C.S. Lewis said this, 
Satan's cause is never more in danger than when a human being no longer desiring but still intending to do God's will looks around upon a world from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he, he has been forsaken. And here's the key, yet still obeys. Yet still obeys. By faith, you can't see God's hand working your life, but he is there. He never forsakes you. It's interesting, the ability to read and study the word of God for yourself is a great step in the battle of trusting in God and working in our life. You know, the Puritans thought about this, and so they passed a law in 1647, the Puritans did, to establish the first schools in our country. They called it the Old Deluders, Old Deluder Satan Act. That's what they called it. And it's interesting, as they developed that, they wanted to get a community that had 50 people in the community, 50 families, to establish a school, to hire a school teacher, to teach the kids how to read. And their goal was they wanted the kids to learn to be able to read the Bible for themselves so they'd be able to stand against that deluder, Satan. Thus, they called it the Satan Deluder Act. Moms, dads, parents, teach your children about God. Teach them how to read, to read the word of God for themselves. The application here is, are we starting our day with God in meditation and conversation with our creator? Are we starting our mornings out? Maybe that isn't the time best for you to uh, get into deep in God's word. Maybe you've got a busy schedule. But on your way to work, take some time to meditate. Most of us probably get into the word in the morning, but that's the time to meet with God. Starting our day with God in meditation and conversation with our creator. Let's look at our second point this morning. The psalmist's prayer for God's intervention. Intervention on our behalf. Look at David as he talks to God in verse 4 of Psalm 5. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors, he hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We have to step back in our humanity and understand that God is the opposite of all that's unholy, all that's sinful, all that's evil and wicked in this world. It's hard for us to get our head around it because there's not much of anything in this world that's absolutely pure 100% of anything. But God is holiness in perfection. Nonetheless, as we know God is holy, David focused on his holiness here as he prayed. This is a new territory for the religions of the day to believe that no evil comes from their gods. You see, uh, the Persian religion, Zoroastrianism, for example, teaches that there's a god called Ahura Mazda, and the symbol for their religion is the eternal flame. And they have priests, that so what they do is they... You know, hour after hour, the priests take turns burning sandalwood perpetually to keep the eternal fire going to please Ahura Mazda. Well, from Ahura Mazda comes two spirits. There's the beneficent or the spirit of love and grace called Spenta Mayu. And then there's Anger Mayu, the spirit of evil and destruction and death. Both of those come from Ahura Mazda, the same God. 
But that's not the way our God is because our God has an absolute hatred towards sin. Look at verse 4. God doesn't delight in wickedness. Second, in verse 5, God hates all evildoers. Look thirdly, in verse 6, David uses the word abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God hates lies. He hates those who murder, those who deceive others and do it out of their greed. People who premeditatively want to hurt their fellow man to receive gain for themselves. Bloodthirsty, someone who twists and perverts justice for their personal gain. Isaiah 3, the Israelites were charged with these feelings from God. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people, the Jewish people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. For an example. So David is confident in this chapter approaching God who hates sin. David has a good understanding of the balance of God's attributes. God is a loving, gracious, and merciful God. And we all sign up for that. We love that. But we also need to balance that out by saying God is a God of perfect justice, of wrath, anger, and judgment as well. And it's hard for us to accept that God hates evildoers, isn't it? God created man in his own image. And then we get to Genesis 6, not long after he created man, and he comes to know, and there's those verses 5 and 6 that said, God regretted ever making man because of the amount of wickedness and evil throughout the world. Now, after David has shared an aspect of the character of God, he petitions God for wisdom and guidance. From the Babylonian Talmud, it says, a man should always first express his praise of the Holy One, blessed be he, and only afterward express his petition. We come to God first, adoring him, thanking him for his attributes. Thank you for the balance of those attributes. But now look at verse 7 of Psalm 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Notice the contrast here. But I, David's hope in God's love versus God's certain hatred of all forms of evil. Notice he will enter God's house with the sense of God's abundant in the Hebrew, has said loyal love. I love that Hebrew word, has said loyal. That God is never going to uh, turn his back. It's another way of saying steadfast love, his persevering love to us. This verse made some scholars wonder if David truly wrote this song. Some of you have different versions in the English Standard Version. It may say temple in your Bible. And so that's what kind of befuddled the uh, scholars as to whether David wrote this. The temple wasn't built yet. If David wrote it, his son Solomon would build it in the future. If this was the temple being referred to here, it would become a psalm that's post-exile with a different writer. So the issue is, why does he refer to meeting with God in his house? Well, that word in the Hebrew house can be interpreted as temple, tabernacle, temporary place of worship, as well as a permanent place, the house of the Lord. David is referring to being in God's presence in the tabernacle in Jerusalem from which he is now left. He says in that verse, I bow toward it. I'm not there anymore. I'm bowing toward it. And David is talking about his ability to enter into the place of worship 
where God dwells. Not just the priests, but anyone who is godly. No priest sitting at the door of the temple could determine who was prepared to enter, if their hearts were right or not. It was a place that only God knows the condition of the person's heart, and it was up to them to prepare for worship before they came. We come to God on his terms, through the blood of Jesus Christ, in the name of Christ, based on Christ's righteousness that was given to us. We never, ever come to God on our terms. And that's what our world struggles with. They want to come to God on their terms. But God clearly tells us that it's through the blood of Christ, through the name of Christ, that we come. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus illustrated this. He called him a child, Jesus did. He put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we have to come on God's terms. In verse 8, David prays, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Notice David did not list his virtues or talk about his righteousness. He talked only of God's righteousness. And Paul emphasizes this point in Philippians 3. He says, And be found in him, found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And what's the purpose? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. We come to Christ to connect with him in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, but... He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of Christ. He gives us that righteousness at salvation. So we come on God's terms, on his righteousness. And David here wants to follow God's righteous path. Enemies is referring here to people who are lying in wait to hurt you or to take you out. David's pleading with God to act on his behalf to protect and deliver him. Righteousness is found in knowing the truth, learning how to live in the truth, and then following through by our behavior in everyday life. Right living is an easy way to remember what righteousness is all about. Right living by God's standards. Two great books to read, The Pursuit of Godliness and The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Two really good uh, books that are, get you down to the basis of how to live a holy Godly life. Well, the Lord leads us on straight paths. You might remember that Abraham wanted to find a wife for Isaac, the promised one. And he didn't want a wife from those that were living around them because they were not followers of God. So he sent his servant back to his people, took him on a journey, sent him on a journey to find a wife to bring him back from, from his relatives. And we remember in Genesis 24, verse 27, in the King James, this servant is praying and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. As I seek God, I'm following his will. I'm following his direction. And of course, 
God led him to Abraham's extended family and Rebekah became Isaac's wife. Joshua 1.7 said this, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Are you seeking to stay straight on the paths of righteousness? Are we listening to the Lord to find out his will as we continue to follow his ways? Are we avoiding taking the detours, the distractions, the things our flesh wants us to do to take us off the road, off the beaten path? But the good news is that God will always forgive us and lead us back to that straight road that he wants us to follow. George W. Truett, the former, the, pastor, former pastor of the famous First Baptist Church of Dallas, said this, to know the will of God is the greatest knowledge, to do the will of God is the greatest achievement. Missionary statesman Hudson Taylor had complete trust in God's faithfulness. In his journal, he wrote, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect him to send three million missionaries to China, but if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all, depend on it. And then his famous words come from this journal. It says, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And you could take that home. That God, if he's leading you, he's going to supply emotionally, physically, financially, whatever you need. If he is leading you, he will provide. So our application here is, are we rehearsing the balanced attributes of God as we pray? Are we rehearsing, thinking about? We have some of those uh, emotions in us that God has, but he's got them done perfectly. Do we focus on those attributes in perfect balance as the sovereign Lord of the universe? Let's look at verses 9 and 10, the psalmist's prayer for God to condemn those in sin and wickedness. The psalmist's prayer for God to condemn those in sin and wickedness. Look at verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. They have rebelled against you. This is the imprecatory part of the psalm where David is condemning the wicked evildoers that are pursuing his harm and he's calling down wrath and judgment directly upon them. He's saying they are liars. They desire to bring death to their prey. They don't care anything about God. They're plotting to destroy God's established order. They have mouths filled with deceit like an open grave. Bishop Horn says, what that means is emitting the noisome exhalations or the breath of a putrid heart. They're using deadly words. Paul describes it this way in Romans 3. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass, the poison of ass, of snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Flattering tongues. This is people who sow discord 
among the church family to cause divisions, also bring hatred, bring death. And David is calling down God's wrath and judgment on those who oppose him and that he considers evildoers. He wants his enemies who are plotting against him to have all their plans turn on them. You know, if you studied the book of Esther, you know the story of uh, Esther. She was the, the Jewish queen and King Artaxerxes didn't know that at first. Mordecai would not, his, his, her relative would not bow down before Haman, who was one of the king's administrative assistants. And so Haman was getting very upset and he plotted a way to kill Mordecai. And it was discovered that earlier on to the king that Mordecai had saved the prior king's life. And so, of course, the king wanted to honor him and Haman humbled himself and had to take Mordecai on horse with, the, with you know, a crown and all these things to honor him, and the wrath and bitterness was building up in him. Well, he figured out a way to convince the king to have all the Jews killed on a certain day within a year. And of course, uh, the king signed it because Haman was, a, at that time, a loyal servant to him. Well, Mordecai opens up and gets Esther to reveal the plot. And Haman had built some gallows to kill Mordecai. An interesting thing in the story is we get to Esther 7, as uh, the king finds out that Haman's the one that wanted to kill all these Jews and Mordecai and that Esther was a Jew, is the, the queen. We see in Esther 7, then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang Haman on that. And they hang Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated, was satisfied. God sometimes takes the very things that people plot to do to someone else and brings that upon them. David wants God to declare them guilty and make them bear the consequences and guilt. He says, God, you be the judge and the executioner on my behalf. David is trusting God to be the righteous one who will triumph because they're not rebelling ultimately against David, but against God. We need to learn that as well. When we stand up for the truth, when people either ignore us or turn cold toward us or outwardly rebuke us or revile us, remember, they're not rebuking you, they're rebuking Christ and God. And Christ got that across in Matthew chapter five, part of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who, persecuted, who are persecuted for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said in Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you hears me, speaking of God, and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Those who hear from us and sharing about Christ and his values and his teachings. They're not rebuking us, they're rebuking God. This week, I was appalled that in the House of Representatives, 210 people from one of our political parties voted against the opportunity to provide medical assistance for a botched abortion, that if a baby was born alive during an abortion, 
the one party wanted to vote to provide medical assistance to let this little baby live. And it passed, but 210 of one party voted totally against it. Their rationale afterward, as I heard their statements, was this is just grand showing for the other party. They're just you know, patronizing their base. And they said, this never happens. This has never happened before. And the point is, what if it did happen? Why wouldn't you support providing medical assistance for someone who survived an abortion? It just shows you where our country, our world is, rejecting life, rejecting God. Our application here is, are we honest in our prayers to God to call out sin? Are we honest in our prayers to God to call out sin? Our last point, David turns to praise for his God who blesses and protects. We talked about the flow of the psalm, praise, petition, Imprecatory, now we're back to the end, praise. Bookends of this psalm, verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. He says, let the godly rejoice. He says, sing. Seventy times throughout the Psalms, the idea of singing is mentioned. A great way to praise God and show appreciation and gratitude, whether it's corporately or by ourselves in our car, is to sing, to sing out to God. Spontaneous singing for joy is another way for us to express praise. David is rejoicing because his enemies will be destroyed and God will preserve the godly. He says, take refuge. He says, exalt and glorify the godly, spread protection over the godly, and eventually, ultimately establish God's righteousness and judgment on earth. The Bible teaches us in Revelation that God will wipe away all our tears when we get to heaven. I don't know what the cause of those tears are. It could be seeing the destruction of the wicked and the evildoers that are going to be uh, sent to hell for the rest of eternity. It could be the regret of not sharing our faith with other people and our families. We don't know, but I do know for sure that God will change our mourning and our weeping into everlasting joy. And those who love his name love the power that's in his name. Those who long for God's love and fellowship, as David said in verse 7, when the word name is used in the Psalms over 100 times, it's referring to God's character. The name of God and Jesus is the name of salvation. In Acts chapter 4, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the last word picture that David gives us here as he concludes this wonderful psalm is that of a shield of protection for his people. And I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 91. He says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You just get this picture of a mama bird 
protecting her little ones under her wings in the midst of a storm. And that's what God does for us. He protects us. He's the shield. He's the defender. Application, are we able to spontaneously praise God when we see his intervention and protection in our lives? Do you see it? Do you see glimpses of it? Have you ever been in a situation where you jammed your brakes on and you just missed being in an accident? Or something happened that prevented you from getting into an accident? That's God intervening. A lot of things in our life, we can see his fingerprints on our lives throughout the day if we're open and listening and available. Intervention and protection in our lives. In destinyimage.org, there's a blog and it says this, God shows up when people want him to show up. As the Holy Word of God declares, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James 4.8. When God shows up, things happen. When God shows up, as people recognize his holy presence, his holy power, his Holy Spirit, and when God shows up, he gets our attention. He does the unexpected and extraordinary beyond our control. Our religious familiarity turns into a holy awe of a holy God. When God shows up, he turns an ordinary bush into holy ground. When God shows up, water turns to wine. The blind are made to see, the deaf are made to hear, the lame are made to walk, the mute are made to speak, the dead are brought to life, the storms are calmed, and even the wind and the sea, sea obey him. When God shows up, the comfortable are disturbed and the disturbed are comforted. When God shows up, people are consumed by the passion of God. The holy fire of God burns in them. When God shows up in the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, it turns into the miracle of modern Israel. When God shows up, Holocaust survivors gathered to their ancient promised land defeat millions of their enemies from five surrounding nations. When God shows up, the holy blood of Jesus and the living waters of the Holy Spirit wash away the color line, the ethnic line, the gender line, the age line, the cultural line, the political line, the economic line, the social line, the language line, the denominational line, and doctrine lines. Like a powerful spiritual tsunami, the overflow of God's life in us, through us, and out of us changes the course of our life and all that is in our path. Nothing is ever the shame Nothing is ever the same when God shows up. Everything changes when he appears. Here's our key thought. Every Christ follower must be honest and real with God about their inward thoughts as they pray to him. After all, doesn't God already know them? And so we need to be honest. We need to wrestle with our emotions. We need to take them to God. We need to see what the word of God says on how other people dealt with these emotions. And we need to deal with them in a godly, godly way. As we close today, here's some questions to ponder. Are you seeking daily an audience with our king? Like David talked about in the first three verses. Oh Lord, in the morning, I long for you. I search for you. Second of all, are we straightforward in our conversation with God about how we feel? He wants to know the inner feelings and emotions of your heart. He wants to be the comforter. He wants to be the healer. He wants to be the helper. And are you surprised with joy when you see God intervening in your life due to your prayers and his grace? Do you see God's fingerprint throughout the day working in the background or sometimes right in front of you in your life? That he gives you that sense that he's hugging you, that he's showing you his love, that he's never going to forsake you. 
but that his loyal love will always lead you into the straight paths if we follow him. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe today in your heart of hearts, you're here today and you're struggling with some some emotions. Maybe someone's angered you this week. Maybe somebody's frustrated you and you haven't really dealt with those emotions and you haven't actually talked to that person. Or maybe you have some deep-rooted things that you just can't even express to God. Groanings, as we talked about in the first part of this psalm. And you're out of words. You've wept all you can weep. Leave them. Leave all these things in God's hands and go to him. And let him be the comforter. Let him be the healer. Let him be the one to show you how to deal with these emotions in a, in a proper way. That's why our world is such a mess because people have these emotions and they just react and they do things that cause them more problems, cause them more hurt. It's up to us as believers to, to wrestle with these things and allow God to lead us. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the promise in John 14 and 16 that you would send the Holy Spirit the comforter, the spirit of truth, that he abides in us if we know you as Savior, Lord, that we carry that Holy Spirit with us wherever we go, that at 3 o'clock in the morning when we wake up and we can't sleep, we can pray to you, that if we're in a stadium of 50,000 people, we can pray to you, Lord. We thank you for your spirit. And Lord, I just pray that if there's those here today that are struggling who need a touch from you, who need to hear from you, to need to be reassured that you haven't left them or forsaken them. Let this psalm speak to their heart today. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.